Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Imagine Publicity on Air is partner sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity, and we're so glad to have you here listening today. This podcast covers a variety of topics for you who are interested in current events, history, and books. I especially enjoy bringing attention to authors and books that you may not have heard of yet, or maybe it's just popular regionally and needs the bump I can provide through exposing through a national listening audience. I'm the host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com, and we're a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media management. Not only do I offer full services, also I offer training to those who prefer to personally handle their accounts. So I appreciate you being here. I appreciate your tremendous feedback. So please keep the suggestions for future episodes coming. You can shoot me an email at Delilah at ImaginePublicity.com or go through my website contact form at ImaginePublicity.com. Well, today my guest is a fantastic Wild Blue Press author, Alan R. Warren, and he's also the host of the successful House of Mystery radio show, which is heard all over the western and southwestern area of the U.S. I'm hoping to pick up some big hosting tips from him off air. So, <laughs> But as an author, <laughs> Alan has written six true crime books and several articles published in the True Crime Case Files magazine and Serial Killer magazine. He recently published his second, I think, second book with Wild Blue Press. He has, I'm not sure how many. We'll get to that. So, Alan, I'm so glad to have you uh, as my guest today. Well, I'm glad to be here. It's, it's just wonderful to meet you. And uh, wow, this is it. I should be interviewing you. You sound fascinating. <laughs> oh, well, we can do that one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your background. What tell us who you are and what what in your background inspired you to become a writer of true crime? Well, you know, I I I don't think there's a particular thing I can say that it put me in as a writer. I was always a radio boy. Uh, since I can remember, I would have the old crystal radios in my room and and shortwave. And all I did, I had to find radio signals every night. That was my life 
was radio and just loved it and and talk radio mainly and i really liked the old shows you know like the shadow and uh you know the just you know the scream the what was the screamer the, the you know the, the the different suspense theater i i just loved that sort of format and uh so that i t- it came with me and i when i got into radio um true crime and paranormal and some of these unsolved mysteries that's why we called it house of mystery was um kind of what we wanted to cover that's what i wanted and so true crime was a big part of it and has been for oh seven eight years the true crime section and so it's just flourished and um actually and how it happened was just there was a few uh, uh, papers and magazines that started asking me if I would write a little thing for them about some guest that I had on or some story I had about guests. And that's how the writing started. And people liked it and it got more and more. And so uh, R.J. Par- Parker, publisher, um, approached me and I did a four-book be- four deal, four deal and they were the uh, short reads in True Crime. And so I did those, and they did well. And so then they um, reapproached me, <laughs> and then I did uh, I redid two of those because they've sold so well that they wanted to do a full whole version of it. And um, then along came Wild Blue Press and Steve Jackson, and uh, that happened by you know happened. It's just it was luck, you know. You meet these people on your interviews and stuff, and. Uh, and uh, I had a story, Last Man Standing, and that was really about uh, what we're going to talk about today. And I um, sent it to him. I sent him some of the idea and uh, some of the writing, and he said, go for it. So I did, and here we are. <laughs> well, that's great. It's, it's it's interesting how radio translates into writing because I know, I don't know about you, but I try really hard not to do scripted shows that I like more of a conversation, but I can see how, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of uh, podcasts and radio shows where it's a storytelling thing and how, whether it be a true crime or whether it be a story of other things, paranormal or whatever. Um, I think it's really coming into its own now. And that's kind of exciting for all of us. So how do you choose which cases to write about? Um, You know, uh, for me, it's about, um, it's about how it ends. Let me so let me explain this theory. Um, you know, when you're a journalist, you're on the air, and you're doing journalism for TV and even radio, and you're doing reporting. You're you're reporting the facts. You're reporting the event, and the feelings are supposed to be kept out of it. Um, the most important thing are the facts. So when you get the step over when you write into a, a book or an article is you, for me, it becomes an, something of advocacy. I'm actually advocating for something. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting something to change. There's something that happened that's wrong in this story, and, and I want to see it change. I want to at least let people know this is going on. So I'm advocating for something, and that puts my feeling into it, and that's 
the difference between what a journalist would do for that story and what I would do. I'm taking something on. So every one of these books that I've written, uh, there's nine now in all, and every single one of them has a, has something that happened during the trial or after the trial. Something happened, and it was just uh, it just blew my mind away. And I thought, well, people don't know this stuff. They're not going to hear this on the news. They're not going to really know this. And this is something that makes it really important. So it's a little bit different of an angle than a lot of other true crime writers. I can definitely see that. And and I think making a murder kind of opened a door for this uh, way of thinking that not everything is the way it seems in in a true crime case. And I I had the pleasure of working with a, a private investigation firm for a while and they were amongst the early um, people who arrived, I guess what you might say, in the world of wrongful convictions. And they were able to exonerate um, a man who had been in prison for 25 years. And it really opened my eyes. And then I also worked with Diane Fanning, who wrote the book um, Through the Window, which actually led to the truth being told in a case where a, a mother was um, convicted of killing her son when actually it was serial killer Tommy Lee Sells, and, and she was oh, able right. to uncover that. that. Yes, yeah. and, and she won the Innocence Project Award. Um, I mean, so, you know, this is something that I picked up in The Last Man Standing, which I'd love for us to go into. Um, it, through my own experience working with these people, it's it's kind of like you say, it's sort of become a cause that people don't really think about or know about. And I think it's important, and obviously you do too. So in, in The Last Man Standing, you have one murder, two investigations, and a wrongful conviction. So why don't you kind of give us a background on this case, and, and let's let's talk about that. Well, the case, uh, the general um, timeline was in uh, December of 1957. Um, two little girls, Maria Riddle and uh, her friend, um, decided to um, go out and play. It was the first snow flaw. <laughs> it was the first snow of the season, early December 1957. They lived in a small little rural town. It's called uh, Sycamore about an hour outside of Chicago. Uh, 5,000 people lived there at the time, so not a big town. And uh, so they raced home, had their dinner, and ran out and started playing in the snow. Um, Somewhere between 6.30 and 7, a gentleman uh, approached them, and he said his name was Johnny, and he um, wanted to know if they would like some piggyback rides in the snow. And so they're all excited and giggly. And so the guy gave uh, Maria a piggyback ride up and down the road and then asked Kathy, that's the other girl. And she said, no, but she said, here, let me go get my doll. She went in to get her doll. She come back and the two of the other, the other two were gone. So then she went back home. Nobody saw him. She went back to the, her friend Maria's house 
And eventually it all became a big, uh, okay, she's missing, she's lost, and uh, police got involved, and uh, all sorts of things were, were going on. Uh, you know, the town was in a, in a fury. They couldn't figure out what, what was going on. And, uh, but eventually, down the road, they did find the body. Um, it was actually in the next year, in the spring. And, um, and the, the, the case actually went cold. Um, they had bits and pieces, but no good evidence, no solid evidence, and the case went cold. Now, Jack McCulloch was a neighbor boy, 17. He was kind of a smart aleck kid. He got himself into a lot of trouble. He would get into fights. He would get into fights with his teacher. He would be drunk. He would uh, steal things. Um, you know, he was that kind of kid. That's who he was. Um, but what he did was he joined the army and he left the city. And then uh, he went to Vietnam for a couple of tours. And then he went to, uh, became part of the the fire department. He became part of the Air Force. He actually became a captain in the Air Force and uh, finished out all of his duty, came back to the States, moved to uh, Washington State area, and he became a cop and uh, got married and uh, was living his life there. And the case was cold the whole time. Nothing new uh, came up and there was nothing going on in the case. So where where the problem was is um, Jack's mother was really sick with cancer and she eventually died. And um, he never got to see her. But apparently the two sisters said that on her deathbed, she, uh, the mother had told both of them that those two little girls, Jack did it. Jack did it. You got to know, Jack did it. And then she died. So she made this deathbed confession saying that her son was the one that tried to kidnap them both, got the one, and killed her. So the wow. sisters took, yeah. So the sisters took that to police, and and finally, um, she the Illinois State Police finally took it as a case. And they did their investigation, and then they eventually charged him with the uh, kidnap um, and murder of Maria Riddolf. Well, let's let's go back and talk a little bit about Jack McCullough. I, I understand that he ended up changing his name. What was what precipitated him to do that? Why did he change his name? You know, it was one of the weird things I thought when I was uh, breezing through the case. And, and what I realized was he was born in England, and it was during the war. And his mother used to hide him up in the fields under boats and in different places. It was like they were being bombed all the time, and they were in the north end, and, and it was really rough on them. And her husband, Jack's father, got killed in a battle. So there was just the two of them. And she worked as a nurse in a, in a local town fixing up um, uh, wounded warriors and stuff. And she met one who was an American. That was the uh, Mr. Tessier. And she fell in love and married him. And so um, he took her back home to Sycamore. 
Chicago and, of course, took Jack along uh, as, as his stepson. Um, and so Jack's name then was uh, Jack Tessier. And so uh, as time went on, he uh, and his mother died. He wanted to honor his mother and his father. So he went back to his original name is what he really did. So it's not, it, 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 it's that. He's just gone back. To okay, his there's nothing nefarious or anything. Okay. No, I mean, we, some, people, some people try to look at it and they're trying to twist it like it is, but I'll tell you, uh-huh. all it really was, was, you know, he, he didn't like his stepfather. It, it, they, they were not close. Hate was probably the closest word to their relationship. You know, he wanted nothing to do with him. And his real father he loved, and he remembered him as a loving father. And his mother was an angel. He thought she was just the best and, you know, one of those. So he wanted to honor them. So he went back to his original names from them. And and this happened before any of this weird crime stuff. So I believe him. I you know, right. and, and after talking to him, I really do believe him. He he had no interest in trying to cover things up and all this. He was doing this before the crimes were even happening. So But didn't he have kind of a contentious relationship with his stepsisters, weren't they? Or half sisters? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very complex case and what happened was he um you know, he he's he's the oldest of of them. The rest are all step because they're from the new father. And um he had a he had a separation of them. He didn't feel love from his father, he didn't feel support from his stepfather. He felt very isolated. He was um older than the others. The others were girls. He was a boy you know, the the three in the in the middle. So he felt I don't think he felt as part of the family. I, I in that way. He he seemed to continue his relationship with his mother and that was going really well. But um not with the sisters. Um completely fighting and and uh, there it, there was just all these silly little things that happened and um it, no, and nothing that I, I, there was nothing major that happened that you would have gone, oh my, oh my, you know, these, there's something wrong. Not for the first little while. Uh, the family got along quite well. So as as things progressed in this case and and the deathbed confession and and I understand it was the sisters who pursued this investigation into him and. One of them accused him of rape, correct? Yeah, yeah. When when they brought the um, when they brought this back to the Illinois State Police, the deathbed confession, um, they interviewed all of the girls, all of the family again, and in that interview, uh, the second to the oldest sister said that she had been abused that um, um, their father, Tessier, or Jack's stepfather, would come in and and sexually abuse the two oldest girls every night. And the oldest girl 
would decide who it was going to be. If she wasn't in the mood, she would send him to one of the younger girls. So this had been going on apparently for years. And the mother did nothing. This is this is the story we get from the sisters. Now that that middle sister said that when she was uh, thirteen, fourteen, Jack, who had just bought a new car then, seventeen, and a convertible, offered to take her for a ride. So she said sure. She got in the car and he took her to friend's place. And uh, in her her claim is that they all gang raped her several times for several hours. There was, I believe, four of them. And then he took her back home and then they had dinner. Now, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, and I laugh and I, you know, I don't want people to say, oh, what an, what an, what an ass, you know, you, you laugh at something like this. I laugh because um, it just sounds silly. First of all, you've got a relationship where they don't speak. They, they, they don't speak for a year at a time. And then the girl's getting molested every night from the father, and she hates her brother, won't talk to him. And he comes along and says, you want to go for a ride in my car? Hmm. Doesn't sound very realistic. And then she goes, and then she gets raped several times for several hours. And then brought back home, and then they all had dinner together. Remember 1957 in a small town of the U.S. Families ate together. You had the mother that didn't work because she stayed home and took care of the house. She did the laundry. She cooked the meals. She served dinner at 5 o'clock. All the kids were there. Make sure they washed their hands, clear the table, clean. That was a very, very popular part of our culture in the 50s and 60s even in the 70s my my parents made us do that i don't know about you oh absolutely yeah if you weren't there at five o'clock you had hell to pay if you weren't sitting at the table by five so i i understand just to kind of put this into context as far as you know like a time frame um it was 1997 that the case was closed but not solved and then the mother, this deathbed confession, this didn't come until 2008. So, you know, we're looking at a lot of years in between, number one, the happening of this crime in 1957 to where they closed it in 1997. And then basically, you know, the, the sisters start pursuing this investigation in 2008. Um, so a lot of time has gone by and, and, you know, it sounds like obviously the sisters carried a lot of burden of their assault and, and everything that was happening in their childhood as far as, you know, being molested. Um, so I, I just wonder how much of that they projected onto him. Is that oh, I think even possible? Oh, um, totally. I think I think it, it all went on because um, – whatever side you fall on, just looking at it from outside, no feelings, just looking at it legally. Um, If he was actually raping her as well as the father was, and all this was going on, yeah, there'd be a terrible amount of animosity, hate, frustration, because nothing's getting done about it. Uh, There'd be a lot of anger. And so um, I believe that is the 
the, the anger that drew the two girls that actually put them in the um, it gave them the fire to do this because it actually took them six years from when they had the deathbed confession to actually get the to a court. And, and this is, uh, this was a long going battle for them um, because the, uh, there was other problems, you know, the, uh, the sister that had been raped, for instance, had charged five other men for doing the same thing. And, um, okay, so, and for the way I understand it is that they, I guess they finally charged him and went to trial in 2012. And, and I, 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 didn't they charge him with the murder and the rape at the same time, you know, the raping no, of no, his no. sister or was it two no, different they, cases? What, yeah. Clay, no, Clay, Clay Shaw, the, uh, the, uh, State attorney at the time didn't have enough evidence for the little girl, Maria Riddle. So he thought what he would do is charge her uh, or charge him for raping his sister and get him convicted and then take him from that position to charge for the Maria Riddle and he'd get a better result. So they first charged uh, Jack with uh, assault and rape and some battery charges and some kidnap charges as in holding her against her will at the house for hours and stuff. So, so he got charged with all that first and that got acquitted. So he, he was let go and given this free pass. So, so to speak, you didn't do it right. free. And he was then acquitted. They brought in, yeah. And then they brought in the, um, the uh, kidnap, murder and possible sexual assault of um, eight-year-old Maria Ridolph from 1957. Okay. So, so basically that. there wasn't enough evidence in, in the sexual assault um, to make it stick, obviously. So he was acquitted of that. Then he went on trial for the murder. And I, I have to mention here, this man is 73 years old now. Yeah. And so, you know, well, we all know there's no statute of limitations on murder, and that's a good thing. So now this Jack is 73 years old, and he's going through a murder trial. Tell us a little bit how this how this all came about. Well, they they charged him with murder, arrested him and set up the trial date. And um, they had nothing but circumstantial evidence. They well, had this no was based detail. on the deathbed confession of the mother? That was it. That was it. And in fact, the, what made it even worse was the two sisters that reported the deathbed confession give two different accounts of what she had actually said and how she said it. So they're not even consistent in what the deathbed confession was. So that was a really weak piece of evidence. And uh, the other evidence was like, was like I was talking about earlier was that they knew the girls had, had and Maria had been picked up between 6.30 and 7 p.m. that night. She went missing. So and the problem was um, that Jack that particular night was over an hour away at the intake center to, be, to join the army. 
he wanted to join the army. So he was going through his physicals, his reviews, his tests, and doing that. And in fact, at 6.57 p.m., he called his mother Collect back in Sycamore to ask her to come get him and give her a ride, or give him a ride, because he didn't want to take the bus back home. And, you know, it was snowing and all this stuff. And um, so that was 6.57. We know the girls, it was between 6.30 and 7. So how can he be in two places in one time? So what kind of evidence, what, what did they use to get a conviction? So what they did was they actually didn't, so so they tried to get that phone call and the mess and the evidence of the timing uh, thrown out of court. They didn't get it done. So what they did was they went back and they changed the time. You see, they see how how it works. Oh, so was, you you've opened another Pandora's box of prosecutorial you, misconduct. Oh yeah, this was minimum misconduct. This was uh, I think it was planned. Uh, they actually went by, because get this, okay, remember there's the two girls out playing in the snow. Johnny comes up, want a ride? Sure. Gives him one a ride, comes back. The other girl goes, oh, I got a doll I've got to show you. Runs into her house. And then when she's in her house, she gets a brand new doll. And her mother's like, where are you going with that? I'm going to take it outside in the snow. And, of course, the mother's like, you are not taking that. Take something else. That's for your brand-new doll. And so so she goes, okay. And the mother leaves the room, and she takes the brand-new doll. (laughs) And and the father looked and, and all this, and he didn't really get too involved because his favorite Western show was on, and he was watching it. Okay, and so, uh, so 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 she runs and then she goes out and the the others are missing and it all begins. But his favorite show was on between six and seven p.m. This is the time when we only had two TV channels. (laughs) There was no stop and go and recording and video VH and DVD and all this stuff. So we know for fact that. The father's a witness that she came in between 6 and 7 to get her doll. And then we know he called at that time and the girls were missing. So all the timing. So they didn't call the father in to testify for the time. And because they got that other evidence in with the phone call, they decided to change the time back to 5 to 6. Oh, wow. So the father was still alive at that time? At that time, he was. Uh At that time, he was. Wow. So, 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 so they intentionally didn't use the evidence of the father. They didn't, or even of the mother, when the girl came to get the doll. They didn't use the evidence um, of anything. Like uh, they, they of the phone call. They didn't want to use that evidence. They, um, they, they, they just, and then they changed the timing um, so that it could happen. They made it fit so Jack could have done it. Mm-hmm. Right. So 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 whatever you want, you know, without putting a word on that, is that misconduct? Is that something that um, we think is OK uh, as law enforcement? Um, you know, in their mind, the cops had to think 
either, yeah, he did it and we're going to make sure he gets put away. You know, they had that in their mind and they thought they were doing the right thing and let's just get him away. It was well, either I think, that. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is an issue in the in our justice system today is the fact that prosecutors don't even want to take a case unless it's a slam dunk and they can win. It's all about the win. The evidence and, and justice seems to be secondary to winning a case, and this happens so much. It's just, you know, another one of my pet peeves I could go on forever about, but I won't do that I today. Know. That's another I show. Know. And do you want me to really give, twist you a little, give you a twist to make it even hurt more? Oh, uh, now okay. we know this. Well, now we know. Okay, so the the two cops and the and the uh, state attorney that changed the times on the evidence, and we know that they did this. So they changed those timings. Uh, nothing can happen to them. There's a three-year statute of limitation on, on um, police officer misconduct like that uh, in Illinois. So nothing can ever happen to them for doing it. Right. Right, another issue, no accountability. Yeah, so you could, you know, they really had nothing to lose. They can mm-hmm. do that. See, it puts you in the situation where, yeah, let's just do it and get this done with, and and everything can move on and quiet down the town. And even if they find out, like they did years later, there's nothing anybody can do about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. <laughs> just see that, just like so, you're almost you're almost asking them to do it. Yeah. Exactly. So he he was convicted at seventy three and given a life sentence for this. Yes. So yes, he was okay. After he went to prison, what happened next? What what did he do through his appeal? His right to appeal. Well, um, he he applied for a few different uh, in a few different directions. uh, one about, of course, uh, well, the, the the biggest thing in the case that we haven't talked about was um, when they were, um, the girl was missing and the, all the cops were there. We had the FBI, Illinois State Police, and we had Sycamore City Police. They're all there doing the investigation. The FBI file, um, once they found the body was still in the state line, they closed up and moved on. So that was closed and moved, and you're down to the city and state police. Well, in the trial, in the in the 2000s trial, when Jack first uh, was being charged, he brought introduced the FBI file, uh, case file of the case of the of the time, and wanted it to be brought in as evidence. And so they had to have a recess, and of course the judge and the prosecutor got to read them over, and the judge had to make the decision. And he decided that it would not be allowed in as evidence because it's hearsay. So, and the problem with that is um, the FBI had given him a polygraph, which he passed, they had also ruled him out because they knew about the phone call and the timing of the pickup and all that stuff. They also had two other um, suspects. In fact, one guy's name was John, and in what they interviewed this John guy, and 
he was there at the night, and he even admitted to talking to the two girls between 6.30 and 7. He said that he had lost directions, or he, he lost his way, and he wanted directions somewhere, so he stopped because he saw the two little girls playing, and he asked them for directions. That was between 6.30 and 7. And so, and, and to go, go even further on that, that man, that man five months later committed the same crime to a five-year-old, and was caught and uh, was convicted and put in prison for life where he died. So all of that was closed up and not allowed to be brought into trial. So the jury would not hear any of that. Well, and this, this brings you to the other side of this whole issue of wrongful conviction is when you put the wrong person in prison, the one who actually did it is still out there committing other crimes. And exactly. so it, it definitely has a huge ripple effect in, you know, in in our communities, not just in the judicial system, but all through our communities. When you have multiple crimes being committed by someone who who someone else is serving time for them. Yeah, it's it's, it's devastating because you look at the, the the system; it's not set up to help. Um, it's just set up as a business and, and it's a large business and there's no great organization there. there everything just sort of goes and, uh, you know, this is a perfect situation and a perfect reason to be angry. And his biggest appeal was to get that FBI file back into uh, a trial because that would prove his innocence. In his mind, that would make all the difference. If the jury knew the, that that evidence, there is no way they would convict him. And and to be honest, I think he's probably right. I, so, I, after, I, you know, what what were his post conviction efforts? Was he represented? Did he was a, an attorney there to take the case and help him through this? Yeah, he went through this a few times, and he was going through this. But that's not actually what really um, worked for him. Um, it was a they, he was going through the uh, challenges and the process, but that never worked for him. The um, there was a state attorney in uh, Illinois that decided to go through the case. He uh, went through the complete case. And at the end of it, wrote a report saying that uh, that Jack McCulloch was wrongly convicted and should have never been convicted on the scattering of, of what they call evidence in this case. And so what he did was he went he approached the court and asked for them to stay and overturn the conviction because uh, it was it was. Just there was no evidence. It was wrongly, you know, just the whole thing. So that blew up the, all over the news then, because when do you ever have a state attorney actually turning around saying, "Oh, this case was tried wrong. This guy was convicted and put away, and he didn't do it, and the evidence was terrible." So that's really what got it going and it got it changed, and it, it took him a matter of six months. To, to get a judge to agree with them and to let him out of jail. 
Well, and so he was actually in prison for several years, right? Yes. This wasn't yeah. this wasn't just in and out kind of thing, and he's out. No, no. Um, no. So after he, so the case was dismissed, and he was actually declared innocent, which I understand a lot of times that doesn't happen when you have an, a case that's been exonerated. You have to go through hoops to have that declaration of innocence. Um, yeah, come down yeah. for you. Um, yeah. So where where's Jack today? Well, um, Jack went back to the Seattle area in the northern part of Seattle, outside of the city, uh, near the water, near the beach, where he loved it. Um, I know he said to me that when he very first, the very first time that he uh, came into that area, in the Edmonds area, north on the beach, he knew that's where he wanted to live. So when he came back from his services um, with the Air Force, that's where he went. And same thing with the uh, prison. Now, I have to say, um, there's a couple of things on that we can add on this. Uh, one is, when he went to prison, he um, was a ex-cop, and he was known as um, a child rapist killer. So he had a terrible stay it that that was not an easy time in prison and i've included a, a lot of the stories and a lot of the things that happened to him you know he got stabbed in his ear the very first day he got stabbed in his eye um the people were out to kill him they all want to kill an ex-cop and a, and a child child uh, assaulter just how it is and he was neither i mean he was an ex-cop but he wasn't you know so he had a really rough time in prison. And when he got out, his wife was still there waiting for him. And he still uh, is with her, though she's on sick bed a lot. She's sick a lot. She And in fact, some of the times I was visiting and we were spending time, he would just take the bus into uh, Harborview Hospital and spend time with her because she was on life support. And... Um, you know, and it was so, it's so hard, uh, you know, you spend this time with someone and, and, um, and this whole thing came along because uh, Casey Porter, his stepson, his daughter's husband, and that they heard me do an interview with Charles Lockman, who, who wrote that awful book that made that terrible Lifetime movie about Jack McCulloch and they turned him into like Jack the Ripper. And, uh, and I and I didn't give him a good good interview. I didn't like him. I didn't like how how he was. They heard me, and that's how they got in contact with me. And then it started from there. And um, this, this you know this family is has been through hell. And yeah, it was complex, and there was a lot of weird things. A lot of families have this sort of stuff going on, and. Um, and Jack said to me that he would let me write the book as long as there was no dirt. Just tell the truth. And which I respect it almost completely. Um, I had to bring the, – the reason I had to bring in on the sister. I, I know that he wanted to protect his sister and keep this all out of it. But the problem was so much of what the sister did and how much she was involved made it so that, you know, 
I had to include him, or you know, the sister and the guy and all that. So so that went on, and um, so yeah, now he's back at home, and he's just kind of living the low life, uh, trying. And the families are all suing, of course, for all the different things. Uh, wrongful and present for all the years and uh, and all the other things that they but for him he's not concerned with it his biggest concern and even with the book is he wanted people to come out of it knowing that this can happen to you this can happen to me this can happen to anybody in the United States of America this is the way the system is and this is what we all have to live with and and none of none of us should feel that this is this couldn't happen to us because it Absolutely. does. Absolutely, and and that's that's yeah. a very powerful message to get out there is the fact that yes, it can happen, and and it does happen every day. And in the meantime, no one's been charged with the murder of this child, correct? Correct. And, you know, and for the fact of the matter, the person that that they charged in the the, the year after the following year in 58 for for murdering and raping a a five year old who was the same Johnny that talked to them within the same half hour that they were attacked. um, I think in everyone's mind in law enforcement, that's who did it. And I I just think that's just just what they it it was him, and mm. anybody I talked to, anybody I was around, it was it's it, just an unknown fact. It's just one of those yeah yeah. What's the point of go after who he did it? Yeah. So I put him in there and I put his scenario and his name and I also listed a couple of other suspects that came up, but this was pretty obvious. Um, and uh, what, it, well, you know, it, it's one of those you can't you can't go back, you know. No, and and unfortunately, you know this, the whole dysfunction of the of the family and the sisters and all that happened to them, um, projecting on onto this case and basically, you know, almost ruining a life and more than one. So. Yeah, it's there's a lot of twists and turns in this case. Now, let's just briefly, uh, since we're we're getting on to that other end of the clock here, um, <laughs> you, you have a couple other books I wanted, and I, I what I would love to do if you if you would graciously accept my offer is to have you come back so we can go a little deeper into the other books that um, that. Well, you have so many good ones, but one I think specifically is the Killing Game um, about the Rodney Alcala case, and then the other is Beyond Suspicion. So all of the, I mean, you've you've got some pretty intense cases that you've written about <laughs> and researched, I'm sure. So maybe you yeah, can sort of yeah. give us an overview here and what listeners can expect on our next interview well actually uh yeah the killing game was a a, a little self-published book i did a couple of years back and uh just put it out and uh n- none of the uh publishers wanted it and uh <laughs> you know that happens and after it was out for a month um oxygen network 
contacted me and said, uh, we would love to make a documentary out of this. And so I said, okay. <laughs> and so we did. I went to uh, L.A. and we did did all the filming. It comes out uh, in December here, Mark of a Killer on Oxygen, if you have it. And if not, you'll see it on an NBC uh, station somewhere, I'm sure. And it's based on the book. And uh, so uh, this is the story of Rodney Alcala. And um, he was the winner of the game show. And he um, um, was very charming. He was very smart. He, um, you know, when he graduated with his marks, um, he actually ended up in getting accepted in NYU to study under Roman Polanski in film school. Oh, that's an so, I didn't know that. Yeah, this man was not, he was not... Um, what you would expect in a serial killer. Um, now, there's something even more evil about this. This is amazing because uh, when he was home in L.A. doing and working and doing things, he's the guy that would dress up like a photographer and go up, go to the beach and say, hey, I can take some pictures of you. You can win a contest and uh, that old thing. And... Uh, <laughs> And offer them and get their phone numbers or their address. Some of them would even go home. I really try to warn our daughters about, don't go with that guy. Yeah, it's just, if they're real, they'll have no problem contacting your parents, you know. Um, But anyway, he would even get them to go home. And he would take pictures of them and he would get them naked and then he would... Uh, do all sorts of bad things, which we we can talk about in the future. So he was going around doing that. Now, at the same time, in America, there were several other murders going on. Um, And he was actually going around to different cities, and he would find that victim, and he would kill them, and kill them in the same way of the mass murderer so that they would be thrown under that crime, not him. Oh, wow. So, so he was looking under the radar. He was smart. He, um, he was devious. He, um, he went to, uh, and that's just, we were just talking about this on the show last week, because now they've, he keeps getting DNA hits all over. Like uh, there was two in Nevada. There was three in Houston. Um, there's like five in Seattle now. Uh, there's two in New York. So in New York, the 64 caliber killer, he would uh, copy. So he would pick the same age group of a person, a girl or whatever, and the same hairstyle and the whole works and kill her the same way. Um, the Hillside Strangler, two of his victims were on the Hillside Strangler list, not until later when DNA came out. Um, there's one in Salt Lake City now that popped up, and um, it, it's it's just actually now that now some in Florida are popping up, and that was the latest news um, because they were um, males. So mm. he was thought of. Well, as- I remember seeing. I don't remember if it was on the news or on social media. They were passing around the you know this whole collection of photos to see if. You know, if anyone would recognize some of these people in these in these photos, so that they would know whether that person was safe, missing, or or a victim. So mm-hmm. he had thousands and thousands of photos, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. When they raided his locker in Seattle, they had um, they actually had over 3000 and um, the FBI and and New York Police Department both put up a page for Rodney Akella with pictures and they put uh, just over 300 pictures on each site and they just wanted an identification of any of them. And the majority of them were girls, but there were some boys. And in fact, that's, that's what it was. One of the, um, one of the killings from a, um, um, another case has come up and, and it was in Rodney O'Kella's pictures. So they found wow. the victim in, in his pictures but they considered him to be in, to have been killed by one of these gay killing groups uh, or guys. And now it's looked like it won't. And so they're going to test for DNA. And I think we're going to find that. We're, we're going to find uh, he's going to outdo Bundy. Uh, this, this man is going to get well over 100 victims uh, before they're through. And he you know. hopefully way behind bars somewhere. Oh yeah, he you know, but you know that this is this is the angle I this is why I took it. It was not because of all these things. That just was well blew me away. I couldn't believe. But he's been convicted um three times for for four different death penalties, twelve different times. He's in California. When you're convicted of death penalty in California, you get an automatic appeal. And the automatic appeal goes up to the Supreme Court of California. The Supreme Court of California right now does not accept death penalty. So 65 of the last 73 that they've had to deal with, um, they've overturned. So, and he's one of them. So he get, like the last one, he got convicted on five murder counts, five death penalties. He gets the automatic appeals and every one of them gets overturned. So um, they have to just do it all over again. Oh, good grief. It's crazy. What is wrong with that system? My God. I mean, it's, I well, can't you know, even I imagine. To, no, and I talked to some of the people that were important, like in the uh, commissioner's office and all that, and they said, listen, uh, this, the, the, judge, the judges are anti-death penalty. That's it. That is not, it's not going to change. So uh, there's no point in doing these because this is going to keep on happening and it's going to keep them in jail and it'll keep them in de- jail for, for life. And then you've got some new prosecutor that wants to bring them to death because they've got the pressure of the families. Now, in the, and the, to top it off, the worst thing is he acts as his own lawyer. He goes in with his sports jacket, sunglasses, and his hair done, and he gets to ask all the victims, all the victims' families. He gets to cross-examine all of them. Oh. And so they, they have to actually live this same thing over and We're talking cases all the way back to 1978. These people oh. uh, have not moved on from the case because they they've already been to court three, four times, sometimes more, and they're going to keep on going. And they'll never have any, I don't like to use the the word resolution, but what it is is it's not over. Like, you know, when the case is closed, done, you're put to death, whatever, it's over. Then you go through your periods of grief and anger and all that, and then you start uh, developing 
new relationships, new life, and you move on. It might not be great, or it might be, you might need counseling, whatever. But you can't even get into that spot until it's over because you keep on facing this creep in prison. And you know how long these trials go. They're, they're not just a week. And then you've got all the cameras in there, and it's just a big circle, and it doesn't end. And it yeah, and, all and of the people are victimized over and over and over and over again. And this is this is so wrong. It's just so it's wrong, wrong on many levels. It's, and it's I wrong. can't so, I can't you know, wait to I have just, you back, and we can dig into this one even deeper. Oh, and you know that one's just you're you're just yeah. Gonna, <laughs> It's deeply disturbing, and I think, you know, again, the more information about it than we can get out, it's not so much that we want to relive this person's crime or or talk about his crime, but the more information we can get out to the public about this type of person that could be your neighbor, um, the more aware maybe people will be so that we can prevent these kind of people from walking on earth. Um, so tell me, Alan, what, what projects have you got in the fire? What is, what does the future look like for Alan Warren? <laughs> Well, and I just released the Beyond Suspicion, which is the um, Russell Williams, the colonel that flew around the Queen, and he uh, was uh, raping and killing girls and hiding them in his basement at the same time. Uh, (laughs) You sure know how to pick them. (laughs) Well, I tell you, they're they're very unique, but they're very good, and there's a lot more to it. than. And remember, people, I do not write just for the gore, and I do get negative comments for that because I write the facts as it is, but I I do it in a polite way. We're talking about victims. I'm not going to sit there and gore over it and get into all this. I want people to understand the facts, how they were found, the problems, and and the you know the things, but there's more to this case than that, and 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 that's how I write. So um, and that's about it. Uh, next year, my new project will be blood on blood on his hands, and it was about the police officer that killed the 16 year old um, autistic boy on the streets of Portland when he was trying to remove him from the downtown. Oh, yes. I think I remember that. Yeah, Ann Bremner was the lawyer, and she uh, uh, won $40 million for autism, autism and some other stuff, and the cops lost. And she's helping me. Actually, I'm, doing, I'm writing it for her in her casing um, because she's doing the Amanda Knox case, right? So. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of like my uh, next... Uh, one of my projects for sure. I, I tend Your next to, big tend blockbuster. To have three or four. Yeah, oh, good. Things, yeah, I've always got three or four going, and uh, um, just whatever whatever happens, happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good way to look at it. Well, I, I I really I thank you so much for coming on today and talking about the case of Jack McCullough and. Um, in the book, The Last Man Standing. And tell listeners, where can they buy your books? That's important. Well, the books are sold everywhere. Like Wild Blue gets it out to quite a few bookstores. Uh, um, And uh, we're also in, you know, uh, Kindle and Kobo and 
and uh, all of that stuff, Barnes and Nobles. It's it's pretty much everywhere. And uh, if you need information or more on it, just go to somethingweirdmedia.com. And I'm assuming that's your page. website. <laughs> yeah, that's and that, something uh, weird you, media. I like that. Yeah, well, I guess it's something weird. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have the because uh, there's five hosts that work there, and we all uh, three of us write books, so all of our books are there. Special oh, deals as well, or if you want something signed, let us know. All the shows are, are there, the schedules and the guests that we have. And don't forget to tune in to House of Mystery Radio Show, which I'm assuming you can pick that up on iTunes and other podcast directories. Yeah, yeah and it's all on there. If you go to the website, it says where to where to listen. It lists all the, you know, it's all the all the main, you know, podcasts right. and you know all them. Yeah, so all the information, find it at somethingweirdmedia.com. Well, everyone, thanks so much for being with Alan, Warren, and I today. And remember to stay safe out there. And more important and most important to me is be kind to each other. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.